The following episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum at the corner of 18th and Vine in Kansas City, Missouri. I'm Bob Kendrick. I'm the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, and I'm proud to welcome someone who is no stranger, the legendary Dave Stewart, one of the members, a proud member of the Black Aces, one of a handful of African-American pitchers to win 20 games in the major leagues, a group that my friend and his friend, the late Jim Mudcat Grant, had the foresight to bring attention to. We hope that there will be many other African-American pitchers that move into that. That's rarefied air, though, to win 20 games. It is. Yeah, no, it is. It is rarefied air. But for those of you who may not know Dave Stewart, he needs no introduction, but I am going to share with you a little bit of this man's impressive bio and track record. Dave Smoke Stewart earned his reputation as one of Major League Baseball's best big game pitchers. His postseason mound dominance saw him win a World Series MVP award, two League Championship Series MVP awards, and over his career, he started 18 games in the postseason, compiling a stellar 2.84 ERA and a 10 and 6 record, 10 and 4 as a starter in the LCS. He was even more dominant, going 8 and 0 in those games. He is an amazing athlete, an amazing businessman, a tremendous philanthropist and a dear friend of the late great Buck O'Neill and mine, I'm proud to welcome back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Mr. Dave Stewart. Thank you, sir. Always good to be here. Always good to see you. Man, it's great to have you back home. Uh, and I say that because for those athletes who are of black and brown skin, to come back here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is indeed home. Well, this is home away from home. Absolutely. You no, know, Bob, but this is a great tribute to the people who laid down the foundation of the game for me and gave me an opportunity to get into the game and to be able to play the game. And so this is home. It's just not Oakland, California. Yeah, 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 yeah. City. This is home. Yeah, no, nah, and we'll talk a little bit about your Oakland roots. And, and the thing that I failed to <laughs> also include in that introduction is that Dave Stewart in 2019 was inducted into the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum's Hall of Game. And the Hall of Game annually honors former Major League greats who we believe played the game the way they played it in the Negro League. So you played it with great skill, you played it with passion, but you also played it with a little swag. And you had to have that if you were going to play in the Negro Leagues. <laughs> That's a... Uh... Didn't mean it to be that way, but you know, when, when you have those good moments, something's got to come out and it manifests itself on the field. So I, I got to tell you, that is one of the, that's one of my proudest awards. Um, and it sits right in the front of my um, award cabinet with, you know, the MVPs and the Clemente Award and, and some of the things that I really cherish. It's, it's one of the, my most cherished awards. Well, as a, as a former pitcher, and being a part of the coveted Black Aces, the group that Mudcat Grant created, what's your best recollection of your first 20-game season? 
And then it kind of snuck up on me, quite frankly. Um, it, I was signed by the A's in uh, 1986 uh, as a free agent. I was released by the Philadelphia Phillies um, and really sat most of that season until uh, Tony La Russa took the team over in, um, I think it was mid-June. Um, and then from June forward, um, I got an opportunity to be in the rotation uh, for the rest of the season every fifth day and, and had a really good second half of the season. Um, and then um, in 86, I was surprised by it, I'm totally surprised by it, but a lot of the surprise was most of the year. I was just keeping my head down and, and trying to prepare for each start, not really looking at the numbers. And when people say, oh, you're crazy, you didn't really look at the numbers, it's true. I, I really wasn't looking at numbers. Um, it was the first time I was in a situation where everybody I pitched against was the other team's number one. Um, Saber Hagen here, yeah. or Gubaza here, Jack Morris with Detroit, or Petrie with Detroit, Viola, Guidry. I was facing somebody's number one, and so I didn't really have time to look at the innings pitched. I just knew when I pitched against these guys that I had to get as deep in the game as I could get in the game to win the game. And so when I realized that I had a shot, you know, I had uh, 19, 19 wins uh, mid-August. And uh, when I had the 19 wins in mid-August, um, you know, I knew, you know, you'd have to get shot by a sniper on the mound or break a leg to not get the 20th. And that's when I knew I was going to win the 20. Yeah, no, and did you realize how special that was at the time? You know, I, I came up in, in, a, in a good period of time. Um, my first Major League Baseball game was 1962, the Giants against the Pirates. I saw Willie Mays against Clemente. Juan Marinchel was on one side of the bay. In 68, Vida Blue became the guy for me in, in, on the Oakland side, and so... Um, I did realize that 20 wins was, was, a, was a special number, and it was a, a number that um, most didn't accomplish. And it wasn't because you weren't necessarily good enough. Things have to really play out perfectly for you to win 20 games. You guys play good defense, score enough runs, pitch well enough on a given day when they don't score runs. A lot of things have to come into play. And so um, by watching... Bob Gibson and Fergie Jenkins, to name a few, Marin Shell and, and Vada Blue. And when you watch those guys and you see them win 20 games and you look at all the seasons they didn't and how well they pitch is how you recognize that, that, that it's a special number. Yeah, no, and, and it's becoming even more special. I think today it's hard to win 20 games anymore. <laughs> and, and so the feat that you all accomplished uh, is really significant, and it, it takes me back as we sit here on the field of legends at the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, sitting right behind the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. But it also reminds me of one of Satchel's teammates, the legendary Hilton Smith. And, and for those of you who may not be familiar with Hilton Smith, I've talked about him on several occasions on Black Diamonds. Hilton Smith had been a longtime teammate of Satchel. Mm -hmm. And Stu, they were polar opposites. So when Satchel Page walked in the room, the room lit up. You knew Satchel was in the room, and if you didn't know, he was gonna let you know <laughs> that he was in the room. 
Hilton Smith was the exact opposite, quiet, very workmanlike, but just as lethal. Hilton Smith did something that I do not believe we will ever see done in the game of baseball again. Hilton Smith won 20 games or more, 12 consecutive years. He was straight up dealing. And the legendary Buckle Neal says the greatest curveball he ever saw at that big 12 mm-hmm. to 6 breaker. And, and Hilton threw what he called a tight curve. Mm-hmm. He dropped down about three quarters and threw it, I guess today we would call it a slider. Right. And he threw it all with pinpoint accuracy, had a dominating fastball to go with it. And when he wasn't pitching, he played outfield, had a lifetime batting average of over 300 for the great Kansas City Monarchs, but he was oftentimes overshadowed by his more gregarious, outgoing, Mm -hmm. and very popular teammate, Satchel Paige. And and all the old times would say, if you're going to get anything, you better get it off of Satchel because you're not going to touch Hilton Smith. And so Satchel, who was the meal ticket, now don't get it wrong, Satchel was the meal ticket. Everybody was coming to see Satchel Paige. And so, and everybody was okay with that. And so Satchel would pitch the first two or three innings, and Hilton Smith came in and pitched the last six, yeah. you know, last five or six innings to get the job done. But he was an amazing pitcher. But can you imagine winning 20 games, 12 consecutive years? No, I can't. Uh, I mean, I, 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 no, I couldn't. I, and, you know, I look at, you know, Bob Gibson and Fergie Jenkins and those guys were six and seven 20-game seasons in a row. Um, and I kind of, when I won the, the 20 the first year, um, set my sights on, on those guys. But to win 20, 12 years in a row is a major impossibility. <laughs> just, you just not, that's just not uh, possible, especially in this day and time. And you speak about in this day and time, uh, you know, the innings um, that pitchers throw are now below 200 innings a season. Um, complete games are almost none in this period of time. And, you know, without pitching the innings, one of the things that Bob Gibson told me is, do you know the best, what, what is the best way to win a baseball game? And I, I was really, really silent when he asked that question because I couldn't think of the answer. And, and, and he said, the best way to win a baseball game is to finish it because then it's in your hands in your and hand. you know what the outcome is going to be. Um, and that was the attitude I took um, from that point on. But we are now in a period of time when five innings and six innings is enough. And then you leave the bullpen to get the remaining 15 outs or what, whatever there must be. But... Um, so it's going to be more difficult for, for pitchers to win 20 games in yeah. a season. Yeah. You know, and, it, and it's just a different philosophy. We saw here in Kansas City during our great run in 2014 and 2015, improbable run in 2014, and then 2015 after the disappointment of losing the World Series and then coming back that following year and winning the World Series, which you rarely ever see happen mm-hmm. in, in professional sports in general, We kind of set the table for those power arms at the end of the bullpen. Six, seven, eight, ninth Mm -hmm. inning. And now everybody's kind of emulated that. And so pitchers are basically looking to get through about five innings. And then, of course, the rotation 
dictates that, okay, well, we got to bring these other arms in. And they're paying those arms a lot of money, too. Yeah, they so, are. So you got to get something out of them. Yeah, they are. You know, I, I, I also, I mean, once again, I, I look back in the 1990 season, uh, we were playing the Cincinnati Reds uh, for the World Series. But when you think about the 1990 Cincinnati Reds, when they had Charlton, Dibble, and Myers, um, and they called them the Nasty Boys. Yes, yes. Um, those guys were all mid-90s relievers. And I tell you what, if you don't get it done in the first six innings, you're not going to get it done in the last three because those guys were just that. They were nasty. And so, you know, now baseball is, is, is asking the relievers to, to stretch it out a little bit more. Now you're asking for a sixth inning, seventh inning, eighth inning, and ninth inning guy. Um, and, you know, that I think um, works for a little while. But I, I don't know that, um, that baseball in itself works without having guys in, the, in, the, in the, your starting rotation that can carry some load. And, you know, I look back on um, Tony La Russa's, uh, thoughts and theory of how we set up our rotation. And, you know, I was the, the guy that came out uh, the first day, and then Bob Welch was the second day. Bobby Welch um, then was a six, maybe seven-inning guy, but we can count on him for six. Mike Moore was a seven, eight, nine-inning guy, a guy that was capable of finishing. Then we had Kurt Young in the, in the, in the fourth spot. He was a six-inning guy. And so Tony's theory was if I completed games, which I think the most complete games I had in the season was 14, um, but I was always double digits, he looked at completing games that day, left the bullpen healthy for Bobby Welch. Then we had Mike Moore, who was capable of completing games. He was a 10, double-digit complete game guy as well. Then we had bullpen healthy for Kurt Young. And then Storm Davis, who was our fifth guy, and uh, you know a lot of people, only, he threw 160 innings one year and won 19 games. And the benefit of that was having people like myself, Welch, and Moore in the front part of your rotation that kept your bullpen healthy for the back for those fourth and fifth starters. Yeah, and, and that, you raise a very interesting point. That seems to be something that maybe is not focused on as much, but probably should. You know, I think we get into such a kind of formula mindset, and this is the way that we're going to do this each and every day, that perhaps starting pitchers going deep into games has seemingly lost some of its importance, but perhaps it should be more important than what people are actually giving credence to. Well, I believe it. I think it's a very, very important because I lived it. I, I, I've seen the benefits of having a rotation where you've got a couple of guys that you can lean on, three guys that you can lean on to take you deep in the game. And I think if you look at the Houston Astros team and if you look at the New York Mets team this year, you look at how Buck, Walt, Buck Walter manages his pitching and you look at how Dusty Baker manages his pitching, you're seeing guys that are going seven innings He's got a couple of dusty, has a couple of pitchers in his rotation that have complete games, uh, which is pretty much, like I said, it's a lost art with the majority of Major League Baseball. But in the end, I wouldn't be surprised if you see the Houston Astros in another World Series. And I wouldn't be surprised if you see the New York Mets representing the National League because pitching, starting pitching, and being able to push those guys, it benefits your bullpen when you're, when you're laboring your bullpen from day one, when you get to September, October, and now they're playing in late October, um, it can wear your bullpen down. Yeah. You know, and that's really interesting in the two names that you just mentioned, the two manager names that you just mentioned. 
<laughs> Buck Showalter and Dusty Baker are both from what I guess the modern fan would say old school. Old school. Yeah, now, and, and I'm telling y'all, old school baseball is still winning baseball. It has been proven time and time and time again. And, and I think you're right. It's going to probably play out that way again this year. And, and so take me back to Oakland, California. Now, I've heard my friend and yours, CeCe Sabathia, say that you were his idol. Mm-hmm. The first opportunity that he ever had to meet you and actually see an African-American pitcher up close and personal was his first encounter with you. Who motivated you? Who did you want to be like? Who did you see that you wanted to emulate as you were starting to grow into this game? I wanted to be like Willie Mays. Um, I spoke about that game in 1962. Um, and my dad uh, was a longshoreman. He worked for Pacific Maritime. And um, very seldom, if you know longshoremen, they very seldom take a day off. And uh, my dad worked night shifts. He was a, he was a midnight to, to morning worker. And uh, I remember him taking me to the, he called it the hall, where he picked up his jobs. But if you're a longshoreman, you can pick up a lot of things at the hall. You can find discount TVs and <laughs> radios and, and all that stuff. Well, he picked up two Giants tickets. We go to see the Giants and Pirates. And after, it was that day when... Um, and, and we, after the game, we waited around back, and we waited, and we waited, and we waited, and there were, seems like thousands of people, probably hundreds, but when you're a little kid and you can barely see over the crowd, it seemed like hundreds of people, thousands of people, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and we were there for two hours, and Willie Mays signed, I believe, every autograph, mine being one of the last, and um, I remember telling my dad that I wanted, to be a, I wanted to be a major league baseball player. And my dad said, boy, you're going to have a tough time making a living hitting a ball with a stick. <laughs> and, and, um, but I kept that dream. And, and I always thought that if I became a major league player, um, that I would never walk away from a fan. And it was based on that day because we waited and I'm telling you, I would have been a disappointing young man if I wasn't able to get an autograph or if Willie would have said, man, I've signed all these and, you know, if I got left out. But he, he didn't do that, and um, I never forgot it. And he was the player I wanted to be when I, when I became a major leaguer. Did you ever get to or have you gotten to spend any time with Willie? I have, yeah, yeah I have. Were you I, able to share that story with him? I did share that story with him. And he shared a story with me, if, if you don't mind me. No, 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 no. He shared a story with me. This was at the Hall of Fame um, this year that uh, Ricky was inducted. And I had a chance to sit with Willie and Bob Gibson, Joe Morgan. I can't remember who the, the other person was, but we were sitting there and we were talking. And Willie told me about the first time he faced Bob Gibson. And he told me, he says, you know, I wasn't... I wasn't thinking about anything. I was just going up there doing what I normally do. And he says, I was digging my hole. I was digging my hole. And then he said, after I got my hole dug, he said, then I looked up. And he said, when I looked up, I saw it was Bob Gibson out there. He said, man, I got on my knees and I was covering that hole up with, 
with dirt covering it back up. And I never forgot that story. He said Bob still knocked him on his butt. Still knocked him on yeah. his butt. Because that's what Gibby was going to do. You know, I've heard those stories of Gibby and, yep. and young, young guys getting into the batter's box. They digging in and Tim McCarver behind the plate and he would tell him, he tug on the on the pants leg and say, hey, you might want to cover that hole up because if not, Gibson going to bury you in that hole. <laughs> I think that's what happened with Willie. He looked up, he got on his hands and knees and covered up that hole. I had an opportunity to grow up with and play with. I, I say he's one of the top five players in Major League history, and that's Ricky Henderson. Um, and, and we grew up together. We played Little League against each other and with each other. Babe Ruth with each other and against each other. And in the minor leagues, we played against each other. But Ricky, in my opinion, exemplifies what the old Negro League oh, players no were about. Question. Um, from head to toe, top to bottom, style, flair, put on a show, say it and back it up. Um, I think Harold Reynolds will tell you this story. Ricky got a call um, prior to a game. And Harold was bragging to Ricky that he was four stolen bases in front of Ricky. And Ricky said, you won't be at the end of the day. <laughs> and Ricky goes out, gets on base, steals six bases that day, and goes ahead of Harold Reynolds. <laughs> so that's old school right there. And we had old school moments in, in our clubhouse, you know, especially when we get to the playoffs and we get to the World Series type stuff when everybody... You know, you got a lot of guys that are quiet in the clubhouse and don't want to don't speak up because it's an atmosphere different from any atmosphere you've ever been in, the playoffs and the series. And we were, Ricky would always start it, I'm, I'm going to win the MVP. I'm going to win the MVP. I'm betting I'm going to win the MVP. And now we got a clubhouse full of guys that's, that's putting money actually in a hat saying, <laughs> we're going to win the MVP. And whoever win the MVP, get the money. So... That's old school play right there. That's how the game was played back in the day where you say it, you brag about it, and then you go out and you do it. Yeah. That's, that's Ricky Henderson. That's the atmosphere that he brought into our clubhouse. Yeah, no, it was special to have him here when we inducted him into our second class of Hall of Game uh, honorees. And, man, he had never been here before. Mm -hmm. And it was he and his wife's first visit. And, and Ricky Henderson was blown away by this experience when he stepped into this environment. And I tell people all the time, if you have any sense of self, when you walk into this space as a African-American or Hispanic baseball player, and if you don't feel this, mm -hmm. it's something wrong. And Ricky Henderson was completely humbled by what he learned that day as I walked him through the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum but may have no doubt about it. Ricky Henderson would have played in the Negro Leagues and been as big a star <laughs> as there could have been. He had the complete Negro Leagues mm -hmm. kind of game that he brought to the table. And that quiet, it wasn't quiet confidence. No. It was very outgoing confidence. And it probably rubbed some people wrong. It was on display. Yeah, no, no, no. You, if you were on the other side, you didn't like him. <laughs> but if he's in your clubhouse, you love him. I'm telling you, he was the life of the party. 
every day. Oh, I can only imagine it. And so it was always special. And it is always special when we get those athletes to come here to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. It's interesting to think, Stu, that the only professional sports league that has ever been owned by black folks was the Negro Leagues. Yes. Was the Negro Leagues. And you are part of something very special, along with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Music City Baseball, and of course, what we hope will be the Nashville Stars, an expansion Major League Baseball team that will come to the great city of Nashville. The Nashville Stars, they took the name from the old Negro Leagues team. And when we're successful in bringing Major League Baseball to Nashville, it will be the first ever Major League team to carry the name and spirit of the Negro Leagues. They almost did it in D.C. Uh There was a great push to name the Nationals, who became the Nationals, the Homestead Grays, uh, the Washington Grays. Washington Grays. And, And that ownership group that was pushing that agenda didn't win it. Right. Uh-huh. And they ultimately settled on the, the Washington Nationals. Nationals. But this would be historic in so many ways because, as I mentioned, black ownership came about essentially out of necessity. Right. Yeah, because here we were overflowing with all this talent uh-huh. with no real place to express it. And, and so Andrew Rube Foster yes. in 1920 set out to address this opportunity to create a league of our own. Mm -hmm. So on February 13, 1920, the great Rube Foster, who is one of the most brilliant baseball minds in baseball history, and still there's a lot of people who don't know anything about the legendary Rube Foster. He's beyond the outfield, right behind you folks, right behind you, That is the great Rube Foster, who was an absolute genius. Rube Foster somehow convinced seven other independent black baseball team owners to come together to establish what would become the Negro National League, the first successful organized black baseball league. And, And you have to understand, this was not an easy task. There had been others who had attempted to create a Negro Leagues and had failed. And then to get these independent black team owners who were having their own success, you know, as independent teams, to convince them to come together and say, we need to form an allegiance Mm -hmm. and an alliance, and we're going to create our own league. And when he accomplished that task on February 13, 1920, right around the corner, from where we are now, the Paseo YMCA. Rube Foster stood there at the YMCA and boldly proclaimed, we are the ship, all else the sea. And and he was sending notice to Major League Baseball that a new player had arrived on the scene to be reckoned with. But when we delve deeper into Rube Foster's vision, he thought he would create a league that was so dynamic that he would force Major League Baseball's hand 
to expand. Right. Yeah. So for those of you who are familiar with the merger of the NFL and OAFL in football, and if you're a basketball fan, the NBA and the ABA, where the ABA created this product that was getting all these star players, the Julius Irvings of the world, the George Gervins yes. of the world, playing with the red, white, and blue basketball, the slam dunk mm -hmm. contest, the three-point line, all these things. And the NBA said, whoa, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> We've got to do something here. Yeah, and, and so Rube Foster thought that he could create a league that would have done the exact same thing, mm -hmm. But, Stu, this was in 1920. 1920. This is in 1920, y'all. That's how visionary Rube Foster was. He was almost right. Instead, Major League Baseball focused on the product on the field. Right. Went in and siphoned that great talent out, right. which is what ultimately killed the Negro League. And we haven't had black ownership in professional baseball since that time or what I would consider to be Major League Baseball right. since that time. How important is this initiative for you? Because you've got a whole lot of things that you were doing. You've been a successful sports agent. You've been a successful sports executive. But when John Lohr, who you introduced me mm -hmm. to, and the folks who are now involved with this groundbreaking historic effort to try and bring Major League Baseball to Nashville came calling, you signed up. Why was this so important for you? Well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know, I've, I've been in the game. I've been in baseball. I think this is my 46th year um, as a player, as an executive, as coach, agent. Uh, I have. I've been on all, all ends of it. And um, the reason why it, it, it's, it's important for me is because I've been in the game and I see how the game works internally. Um, and I, I believe that I have a better idea for what we should be doing in the game. I believe that, I believe that the blueprint of baseball right now um, is not a blueprint that works for you or me or Brown or people of, of color. It, it doesn't work. Um, we've had baseball executives current say that it doesn't work, but the practices still remain the same. And so for me, one, holding the positions that I have in baseball, um, being an executive, eventually in a, a general manager in Arizona, um, and building, quite frankly, a playoff team in two years, but not reaping the benefits of that playoff team in the third year because I was fired, um, it didn't put a bad taste in my mouth because I'm never angry or bitter about life experiences because whether they're good or they're bad, they lead you to a better place. Um, the experience in Arizona put me in a, in, a, in a better place mentally where I felt that it's time for me to own a team. Um, it's time for me to be a part of that upper echelon, the people that make decisions not just about players on the field, but an organization in general and how an organization should run. And, you know, diversity um, in, in baseball, I won't say it's non-existent, but the percentages don't, don't dictate that the sport is doing things, in my opinion, in the right way. Um, 
when I, the, my vision is I sit in a, in, a, in, a, in a room and I make a decision for my organization. And when I look at the people that are in that room that are filling the seats in that boardroom, they're not all me. Um, how can I have a better idea if it's all me? Uh, you have better ideas and better experiences when the people that sit in the room are people that don't all look like you. Yeah. Because now we're getting information and we're getting detail and we're getting experience of everyone. Um, and when you put all those things together, it has to work for the better of an organization. And so that for me is the, the big piece of it because I've been in an industry and I've gone in and I've interviewed for, interviewed for general managers jobs and I've listened to other people who look like me that have gone in and interviewed for general manager jobs and I know that their experiences, I know that their education levels should put them in a position that they should have gotten jobs but when they leave the room they don't even know why they didn't get the job. Um, that's not the way the business is supposed to be done. And then the, 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 the secondary part of this and really it is the secondary part is I want other little black kids and brown kids to understand and know that there is a ceiling that can be reached and nobody is going to stop you from reaching that uh, or having the ability to get where you want to go that you haven't reached into your road that your road can take you as far as you can dream if you're willing to sacrifice, put in the work to do it. Um, that is the secondary piece. Um, but overall, I've been in a game that just, in my opinion, hasn't been fair to people that look like me. It hasn't been fair to, the, to people who are brown. It hasn't been, it's not a diverse game. Yeah. And it's time for diversity. Um, it's time for Major League Baseball to, to open itself up to other opinions mm -hmm. Um, to open itself up to what makes the game actually better. And, um, and so I'm, I'm hoping, um, I, I think that we have the support um, from the commissioner. I've spoken to, oh, probably a dozen owners in the game um, that share my vision um, with where the game is and what the game should be doing. Baseball has been played for Long time. A very long time. <laughs> Jackie Robinson was 75 years ago yes. that he broke the, the color barrier. Um, and I believe that there has not been one black owner, zero. We have uh, zero general managers in the game right now. Kenny Williams being um, the vice president in the Chicago Whites organization. And we have two black managers on the field. That's Dusty Baker and, and Dave Roberts. So the game is ready for change. The world is changing. Um, for sure the world is changing. I mean, we can, you know, we can point to George Floyd and what, what took place in the George Floyd murder, murder. And we listen at the comments that took place after the George Floyd murder and, and the things that were being said and how we were going to change. I look at the comments by Theo Epstein, um, who uh, is a highly touted, executive in Major League Baseball and, and how even Theo said that I do have a tendency to, to put myself and surround myself with people that I'm comfortable with and those people do look like me. And so this isn't about black or white. This is about 
doing the right thing and the game taking another step and advancing another step in the direction that it should be. Um, and um, so that's what it's about. Yeah, and, and it's really interesting because foundationally, that's kind of the role of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. At the crux of this story, we help our guests gain a better understanding. I hope a greater appreciation for the true value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And again, how those are indeed pillars toward building a bridge for tolerance and respect. And as a society, that's how we will continue to evolve. But there is great business sense that comes along with that. Mm -hmm. And it goes back to what you said earlier. We have to get out of our comfort zone. If everybody around you, if you don't have diversity of thought sitting around a table, you're not maximizing the true potential of whatever that organization or business could be. Correct. And, and I think something as simplistic as what we saw with the integration of baseball, when Jackie Robinson breaks through and other black and brown players now move into the major leagues, what happened? Major League Baseball got better. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that's, that's oversimplifying, but it absolutely got better. When Rube Foster formed the Negro Leagues in 1920, mm -hmm. there was one white face sitting around the table, and that was Kansas City Monarchs owner J.L. Wilkinson, and Foster initially did not want any white ownership. He was very reluctant to having any white ownership, but he ultimately relented because he, held, he kept hearing these great things about this dude named J.L. Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. and, and Wilkie, y'all, made his entire living in black baseball. And so he had owned a team called the All Nations prior to his Kansas City Monarchs becoming a charter member of the Negro Leagues in 1920. And the All Nations team, Dave, had what I would refer to as a homogenous group of athletes made of black, white, Native American, Hispanic, Asian. J.L. Wilkinson was comfortable in his own skin which allowed him to be comfortable around those who didn't look like him. So he had made his entire living in black baseball, and when he sat around that room that day, he was the only white face in that room, and Foster eventually relented because he understood that Wilkie had what he needed, mm -hmm. and that was access to stadiums. And if his new league was going to survive, he had to have that needed yeah. access to stadiums, so he would relent. Wilkie would bring in his charter, Kansas City Monarchs. He would become secretary of the Negro Leagues. The Monarchs would go on to become one of the greatest baseball franchises, not in black baseball history, but in baseball history. And <laughs> this kind of jettisons this new vision and this new league that just absolutely takes off and foster thought under his model we would have had complete integration of our game, though. Yeah. Because not only would we have had black players, we'd have had black owners, black managers, black coaches, team physicians, right. traveling secretaries. We would have fulfilled every role that you could fulfill. Yep. And you can imagine, if they had taken four teams, 
and then take the best out of the other four teams' stars and fill those other four teams. Can you imagine what that would have looked like in Major League Baseball? And I can tell you, Major League Baseball did not want any part of that. No. Kennesaw Mountain Landers was not going to have that. It wasn't going to happen. But you can only imagine what it would have been like. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, we're, we're just, we're in a great period of time now um, here across the country. Um, and like I said, baseball, in, in every conversation I've had, to a T, um, they've said that it is time and that they're ready for minority diverse ownership in the game of baseball. And so, um, you know, we don't just talk about, I mean, when you were inside the sport, and I, I have been inside the sport, I was a minor league director, I was a, a director of player personnel, assistant GM, and then eventually a general manager. But when you're inside the sport, and you're me, and you're looking at your organization, and um, you look at, at one point, you'd have seven minor league teams and not one black trainer. Um, you, don't have, you don't have any black minor league directors or black head of scouting. You don't have any black assistant general managers. And baseball is, is a huge organization. Yes, it is. It's not, it's not just one team. You're talking about 30 teams. And when you look at each organization, eight teams, you look at scouting department, which can sometimes be 50 people just in scouting. Um, and then when you put it all together, um, it's, it's, it's really, in my opinion, it's, it, it's a shame to see baseball internally work the way it does. And um, so my, my goal and my dream, and I, I keep telling anybody who asks me, well, this, this is my last deal right here. I, I, don't, I don't have any more deals. This is it. This is the last negotiation that I'm going to make. This is it. Um, but I'm, 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 uh, this, this one I will be relentless on. I will battle for this. And, you know, I'm aware of what I'm standing up against. You know, four years ago, five years ago, um, we were in the bidding and the running with uh, Derek against Derek Jeter for the Marlins. So I've been through that process. I understand what's necessary. Um, and so those experiences prepared me for what I need to do in this run. Um, but I, I also think that everything is, is all about timing. timing. And obviously, uh, I believe in God, and I believe that, you know, this is the time of there's something that's telling me that this is the time and the time is right. And um, so, uh, I mean, you're part of this. We're going after Yeah, no, it, and it's so exciting, y'all, because <laughs> this, as I look at it now from a self-serving standpoint, this would be a game changer for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. You know, as we continue to build an opportunity for long-term sustainability of this great museum and this amazing story of triumph over adversity that really resonates, I think, more today than ever before. And, and so to have this kind of allegiance and alliance with Music City Baseball and John Lohr and the team that has been assembled, you believe in this project so much that you uprooted and moved to Nashville. Yes. And, and I think that says a great deal about your belief in not only wanting 
to make this happen, but the belief that we can make this happen. And, and, and we say that understanding that the road is going to be arduous uh, as we could continue to try and build the case. You're brought in specifically to go out and try to recruit a minority investment team that hopefully could be the majority investor in a venture like this, which ideally is exactly what baseball says it wants. Right. Uh, why Nashville in your mind? Because I think Nashville is ready. Well, first of all, that Nashville, as you know, John Laura moved to Nashville with no intent of baseball um, four years ago. Um, he and his family uprooted themselves out of California. Um, he lived in a great area, Northern California, a city called Alamo, and, and he moved to Nashville. And if you know John, all of a sudden, the commissioner started rumbling about expansion baseball four years ago, and he mentioned Montreal, Mexico, North Carolina, Nashville, Las Vegas, uh, and a few other cities. And then that, for John, started a spark. He started thinking, he calls me and he says, hey, you know, commission's talking about baseball in Nashville, you know, and you need to be a part of this. You know, we're putting together our board of our board of directors. We're putting on our we're putting on another group. I want you to serve on a couple of groups, and boom. So that started it. He started doing demographics and sites and all of the stuff that you should do pre Major League Baseball. And then all of a sudden, the commissioner a couple of years later, the the number of cities is narrowing down now. Nashville is one of the cities he's talking about at the top of the list. And so why Nashville? Nashville, if you've ever been there, first of all, it, it's, it's one of the greatest cities to come and visit. I mean, just to go and visit. I mean, the music, it is called Music City. Music City. Um, the food, as you can see, I'm Got a little bit of belly, so <laughs> and my mother's from Louisiana, so I have an appreciation for good South Southern food. Um, but even more importantly than that, Nashville is growing. It's growing at a tremendous rate. People are leaving all parts of the country, California, Northern California, Southern California, different states. People are coming to Nashville. And so Nashville at actually demonstrates what we are talking about with the Nashville Stars. It, it's becoming a much, much more diverse state. Um, and it has football, which they support. They have soccer, which they support. Somebody told me don't mention soccer because <laughs> your son has some bad situations with soccer. Sorry about that. <laughs> And they have hockey. Um, so they've got three major sports there already that they support, and they support greatly. Um, and um, I think the key to this, and they have a minor league baseball team called the Nashville Sounds um, that leads all of minor league baseball in attendance yearly. Yeah. And so that in itself tells you that they will support baseball. 
that they will support other sports. And if you spent any amount of time there, I believe that the NBA draft was there a year ago. And revenues for the city um, and the attendance of the draft and the festivities of the city and the people that came, came into in. the city, Absolutely. Um, it was off the charts. Yeah. And so um, when you put all of that together, um, it, it, it makes sense. It, it made perfectly good sense that Nashville should be the place. I mean, it makes perfectly good sense for baseball that Nashville um, will be, I believe, one of the top two places for expansion. Um, and if you ask me the question, expansion over relocation, because relocation has been talked to, I think that expansion um, is a better fit because we get to start our own history and our own tradition. Um, and uh, I, I don't know what else you can say about Nashville other than if you have the opportunity, the time, and the chance to go there, I would recommend that you do. And then you'll understand um, what we are talking about when we talk about expansion baseball in Nashville and the Nashville Stars. Well, it, conceptually, it was a brilliant idea that John came up with when he reached out to me to vet this notion of potentially naming this team the Nashville Stars after the old Negro Leagues team that didn't exist very long there, but was there, and then to share with me a, grandi a, a more grandiose vision of how the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum could play an integral part in helping get this team to Nashville. Mm -hmm. And now I've been going back and forth to Nashville and I'm, I mean, I am blown away at the number of cranes that are in the air, the number of Fortune 500 companies who have relocated there and that is mm -hmm. now their headquarters. So the corporate structure is there. Yep. You've got the educational arms with great universities mm -hmm. like Vanderbilt University, but also those great African-American HBCUs yes. like Tennessee State University. Fisk. Fisk, all there within that area. So I have very little doubt about Nashvillians' willingness to support baseball, Major League Baseball, in a significant fashion. And so I am, like the rest of us, trying to speak this <laughs> into existence uh, because, again, this would be monumental for you, day to day, what, what is it like? You're going out, you're talking, you're pitching, literally. It, it, you know, you're a great pitcher, now you're pitching again. What is it like to try and sell this concept and this idea? Well, I mean, you have to be involved in the community. Um, and, there, I mean, there are different legs of the community. You've got your community, you've got your city council, you've got your black caucuses, you've got your churches, you've got the corporate um, sectors, you've got a lot of different pieces that you have to address um, to, to support this. Um, and then, you know, the other, the other portion of it, even though this is a team that's probably three, four years away um, from being named a, a real team uh, in Major League Baseball, um, for Major League Baseball, um, you the best, the best path to success is to show support, financial support. And so, um, you know, I've been in, in the financial section of, and, you know, it, it's also who you know. 
Um, and so you're leaning on friends. You're leaning on them to lean on their friends, um, which that avenue can be great. And so my day today is a lot of phone calls, a lot of meetings. Um, I've been on a lot of plane rides. This is, this is three weeks that I've not been at home. And so um, it's, you know, meeting and greeting, um, but I'm not talking from a script. And I believe that when people see in your eyes and they hear from your voice what the vision is and how great this will be, historic. Yes. Um, uh, it, it, it doesn't go on closed ears. Um, people, have, they value it. I mean, we've got, we've got a brand. We've got Nashville Stars. I've got Nashville Stars on my chest. We've got Nashville Star gear. If you go on our website, you'll see that we have what all the major league teams have. And we're not even a major league team, but we're selling as great as most of the major league teams on our website with our gear. Um, you look at our Twitter, you look at our Facebook, you look at our social media. Um, we are doing better than most major league teams when it comes to social media presence. And these are all the things that Major League Baseball, the commissioner's office, they embrace. Um, and it lets you know, and it lets them know that we are prepared and we're ready to make that next step. And so what we're trying to do is make it easy for the commissioner to say yes versus, uh, I don't know. I mean, it, we're making it easy for him to say yes because we're dotting the I's early. And then we get when it comes time, which financially we'll be able to cross the T. Yeah. And so um, that's what my days are. It's, 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 not, it's not soliciting. It's preaching and it's having people understand and see my vision for what Nashville can be and what Nashville is going to be once we have a baseball team. In a perfect world, how do you envision this structure with a large minority ownership investment or a majority minor, minority ownership investment? Well, because it is diverse and it is about equity and equality, um, I see it to be 51% minority and I see uh, the other 49% to be, you know, from all walks of exactly yes exactly but 51 percent for this to be a minority-owned baseball team it has to be 51 percent exactly well it is it's an exciting time for us and, and as I oftentimes say it's really special when you can dream out loud yeah no you know dreams you know the dreams sometimes are just kind of enclosed mm -hmm. that they're, they're in your mind and in your heart but we're getting an opportunity now to dream out loud. And, and I am so excited about you being such a vital part of this effort to not only bring Nashville what it deserves, a Major League Baseball franchise, but also to be a part of helping steer this museum to a level of growth and success that I think all of us had hoped one day that we would reach. And, and so it's exciting to be on the ground floor and be a part of this. And like you said, build a history. We're watching this unfold right before our very mm -hmm. eyes. And, you know, I just think John Lohr and all who had the foresight to think about this potential project 
and how groundbreaking and historic this will be. Mm-hmm. Again, as I speak this into existence, how historic this will be when the Nashville Stars become an official part of Major League Baseball. I mean, my dream come true is that I die in baseball and I'll have an opportunity to do that. Yeah. So uh, I'm, I'm really excited and looking forward to this opportunity. Well, we are equally excited and I'm equally excited to have you here sitting here on the field of legends and us having this conversation about changing the game of baseball 75 years after Jackie Robinson breaks Major League Baseball's color barrier, which signal the death knell for mm-hmm. the Negro Leagues, that we're now having this conversation that could, in its own way, revive mm-hmm. the Negro League. Yep. And, and that is historic, that is significant, that is important, and, and I can't think of a better pitch man to have leading this effort than my friend and Major League Baseball legend, Dave Stewart, leading the charge with us as we dream of bringing Major League Baseball to Nashville. Y'all, how about a resounding applause for the great Dave Stewart. Thank you. Thank you. Help continue the legacy of Hall of Famer Buck O'Neill by visiting thanksamillionbuck.com. With one million donations of just a single buck or more, the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum can move closer to completion of the Buck O'Neill Education and Research Center on the historic site of the Paseo YMCA, where the Negro Leagues were born in 1920. We'll teach not only the stories of Negro Leagues baseball, but also math and science through the lens of baseball history in the spirit of baseball's greatest ambassador, Buck O'Neill. Log on to thanksamillionbuck.com and donate today. Every buck counts. If you enjoyed these stories and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Diamonds is also available on the SXM app, free for most subscribers. Just download it today and tap podcast. For more information on the Negro Leagues and the legends of the game, please check out our website, nlbm.com, and follow us on Twitter at NLBMuseumKC. Black Diamonds is part of the SiriusXM Podcast Network and is hosted by me, Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Additional voiceovers provided by Darnell Samuels. Editing and sound design by Rob Moore. Special thanks to SiriusXM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen, and Vice President of Sports Programming, Chris Eno. SiriusXM Podcasts.